Thank you, Pastor Bill, for leading us in prayer and reading God's Word. And this morning, as we reflect upon this story of Jesus in the upper room with His disciples just hours before His betrayal and um, less than 24 before His crucifixion, um, I want to talk to you about the power of love. And by that, maybe some of you older folks uh, are thinking back to a song from the 80s by Huey Lewis in the News, and it was awesome, you know, Michael J. Fox riding a skateboard behind the cars and all that kind of thing, um, but it wasn't as glorious as what I want to talk about, okay? And that is the demonstration of love by Jesus in the upper room, and, and we see that for his disciples, and we're going to look at that even for his denier and his betrayer, how he demonstrated love to them, and then how he gave his commandment to his disciples and to each of us to love one another as a new commandment. We'll talk about what that means. And then finally, how, how we actually do that, how we can have the power to love like, like Christ loved, the very power of love, uh, which I'll go ahead and give you a spoiler alert, is the cross, the very cross of Christ. But let's start by talking about the demonstration of love. We, we see Jesus here demonstrating his love, his agape love in this upper room, even for his betrayer. That would be Judas, Judas Iscariot, his, his very enemy in that room. And that's, that's our first sub-point A for his betrayer. Verse 18, Jesus kind of, I, I, I kind of imagine uh, lowering into a whisper. He, he's, been, he's been talking to them about servanthood, and he had washed their feet, and, and we saw last week how he, he commanded his disciples that they too should wash each other's feet. But now he kind of lowers his voice and says, I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. You can sense his voice cracking as he quotes Psalm 41, verse 9, which is a psalm of David, in which David writes, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And, and this verse is referring to a dark time in David's life when his son Absalom rose up against him and tried to overthrow him, tried to kill him and seize his throne. But most scholars think that actually this verse is not a reference to Absalom himself, but to David's friend and former confidant, Ahithophel. And Ahithophel had seen uh, Absalom's team as the winning team, and so he had betrayed David and joined Absalom's team and became a trusted advisor to Absalom. But then when the tide had turned against Ahithophel, he went out and hung himself. What a, what a tragedy. What a tragic figure. But I can't think of a more tragic figure in the Bible than that of Judas Iscariot. You know, I doubt when Judas first met Jesus that he thought it would end with his betrayal of his master and him hanging lifeless from an olive tree. So how did he get there? Judas was one of the most respected disciples. He was from Kerioth, which was a more respected place from Galilee. So he had 
kind of a more upper class pedigree than most of the disciples. He had, he had manners. And they trusted him such that they gave Judas the money back. And as, as we'll see in this text, even as Jesus plainly tells his disciples that they have a traitor in the midst, nobody suspected Judas. Well, at, at some point in his life, he compromised. He, he, he stole from the money bag. Somewhere, Judas gave into the root of bitterness, and he opened up his heart to satanic influence. Remember in verse 2 of John chapter 13, we, we read this, the very introduction to this, this whole uh, scene here. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So we see Judas had opened himself up to satanic influence. Verse 21, we read, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, this, this, this phrase, troubled in spirit, is the same phrase that is used in John eleven thirty three 33, when Jesus encounters his friends at the tomb of Lazarus, and he's troubled in spirit. And then we read that shortest verse in the, in the Bible, Jesus wept. So the, the, the concept here is that this deeply moved, deeply grieved Jesus. And so you should understand, we should understand in this text that there would be a, a quivering voice. And, and it's easy to think that Jesus was troubled for himself. One of his trusted disciples was plotting against him. Treachery hurts. But if we take a closer look here at the story, even, even reading um, uh, and understanding some of the culture that we're going to go through here, uh, in between the lines here of the text, I believe that Jesus is primarily troubled for Judas about losing one of his disciples whom he knew. And, and imagine Jesus as he is washing Judas's feet, looking into Judas's hollow eyes and, and pleading with him with his eyes to repent. It's not too late, Judas. Imagine it back in verse 10, him locking eyes with Judas when he says, and you are clean, but not every one of you. In other words, he's sending him a signal. He's saying, I know what's going on. I know what you're planning. It's not too late. Now, there's a lot, a lot going on here in this text. So let's look a little more carefully here. In verse 22, as Jesus makes this announcement, there, there was no lack of consternation among the disciples. We read that the disciples looked at, a, at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Matthew tells us that they all in turn asked Jesus, is, is it I? There was this fear. There wasn't an aha. We've suspected this guy all along. There was a, a fear. Could it be me? Well, we read that one of his disciples, that would be John, this is John's code for talking about himself. He says, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter um, uh, uh, motioned to him 
to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. And you can just imagine this. They're at the table, and Peter kind of gives John, you know, the signal. Uh, you, know, a, you know, ask him, what's going on? And, and John leans over. And, and so that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, and this would have been a quiet whisper that no one else would have heard, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answers him and gives him some specifics and says, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. I think it's important to understand a little bit about the anatomy of the room and the culture of what is going on here to really understand um, why is Jesus doing this, okay? First of all, Jesus had given Judas the honored position for this meal. So that would have been to the left. Jesus would have been the uh, most important guy in the room, the, the master of the ceremony, so to speak. And as I mentioned last week, they were reclining, leaning up against their, their left arm like this, right? So we would have had John, his head would have been very close to Jesus' breast, and Jesus' head, in order to be able to dip this morsel, would have been very close to Judas's breast. Now, the person sitting to the left of the master of the feast had the seat of honor. And the only reason that Judas would have had that seat of honor is if when they were coming in the room, Jesus had brought him there and said, Judas, come sit with me. I have something to, to maybe talk with you about. Um, come and sit next to me. And so he had given his enemy this seat of honor and in the culture of Jesus' day, taking a, a, pre, a piece of bread, and, and it's kind of important to understand a little bit about what food would have looked like, okay? The, the bread that they would have eaten together would have been similar to what you might find in South or Central Asia today. Um, naan, okay? It's like, a, it's what the Afghans eat, and, and you'll find it in, in parts of India, like a hard bread. And when you, you actually can use the bread, since you're eating with your hands, as, an, as a utensil, they actually scoop up, uh, the Afghans will scoop up rice and a sauce. Jesus and his disciples would have had a, a kind of a, a meat sauce, right, that, that Jesus would have dipped that bread into. And in his culture, dipping a, a, a piece of bread in, to a, uh, into the meat sauce and, and handing it to someone, if you were the host, that was a gesture of honor. It was a gesture of friendship. That's how everyone in the room would read it. And so while Jesus was disclosing secretly to John the identity of his, of his uh, betrayer, he was offering Judas one last motion of friendship. This was an opportunity, uh, every opportunity possible for Judas to repent. And you have to ask the question, why is it that no one else in the room has any idea that Judas is the man? These were guys who had spent three years together in very close proximity. And when you do that, you tend to get signals and you tend to have intuition. And if there was any reason that Jesus would have wanted everyone to understand he's the guy, they would have had it. So why is the fact, why is it that no one suspects Judas? Well, it's because Jesus is protecting his identity. And I can think of more than one reason. For one, uh, Judas was part of God's eternal plan for Jesus to go to the cross. But what I believe we see here is that Jesus is still 
lovingly giving Judas every chance to change his mind. Only the two of them knew of his treacherous plans. And so no, no one else except John now would have been the wiser. But, but tragically, Judas rejects Jesus' love. He, he continues his play act of devotion. He takes that bread and his fate is sealed. One pastor wrote, at that moment, an immortal soul committed suicide. And so we read in verse 27, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. We'll come back around and talk about that in a moment. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Now, that night comment is both literal, it was dark outside, I believe it's figurative as well. This was the point of no return for Judas's soul. He was now completely controlled by the devil. Now we see some high drama going on here, but there was something even more dramatic going on in the spiritual realm, behind, behind the scenes as it were, from what they could see. But Judas, we know, was a pawn of Satan in a larger, longer, cosmic drama that had gone back to the very beginning of what we know as the beginning of our earthly realm, what, to the very beginning of time as we know it. And that would be the Garden of Eden, where God had created a paradise, and God had created man and given him a helpmeet in Eve, and Adam and Eve were living in bliss. The only true humans, if you think about it, who had uh, an entirely unstained free will, meaning they had the option to not sin. But God gave them, with the tree, an option to rebel. And, and, and we could go on for some time about the significance of that. Um, my son has asked me repeatedly over the years, why did God have to make that tree? All this suffering we have to endure. But I'll tell you, the option to sin was part of what um, uh, 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 true love and true devotion uh, needed, right? Uh, that, that being, they were not robots. These were people who, who truly loved God from the heart and had a real relationship with him. But alas, Satan entered the picture and sought to sabotage God's good plan. And indeed, he did that. He, he tempted Eve first and her husband who stood there idly and ended up eating the fruit right after her, and they sinned against God, and this broken world that we know and inhabit um, began. That's the, that's the genesis of suffering. And yet God's eternal plan was not frustrated. You see, the, the tree was part of the road to the cross. God, in a sense, took that tree and carved it into a cross and this was Jesus' destination. But God cursed the land, and God judged humanity, and God cursed the serpent in Genesis chapter 
3, we read, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so like the garden where, where Satan had, seek, had, had tried to sabotage God's plan and, and, and had tried to, to attack God's people, we, we see here Satan is the ultimate villain behind Judas. He can't help but try to sabotage what, God, what he thinks God is doing. And now he thought he could destroy Jesus. So we see here in the upper room as, as Satan takes possession of Judas, him squaring up against Jesus himself. But as, as one writer put it, Satan had brought a knife to a gunfight. Verse 27 says, and I'll repeat this, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, and understand as Jesus is looking Judas in the eye at this point, he's looking straight into the eyes of Satan. What you are going to do, do quickly. What we see here, even in the upper room, is Jesus showing his authority over Satan. When he says to him, in my words, go ahead, make my day. Do your worst. That's what he is saying to Satan. See, Satan's plot here was to destroy Jesus on a cruel Roman cross, but this was Jesus' plan from the beginning to save the world. But even in this tragedy of betrayal that fit into God's sovereign plan of salvation, we see Jesus loving his treasonous disciple Judas till the end. But we also see him demonstrating his love for the greater team of disciples. And that's letter B here for his disciples. In verse 19, Jesus says to them and explains why he's telling them in advance that he will be betrayed. He says, I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, that you may believe that I am he. You see, Jesus knows that in a few hours, his disciples' world will be completely turned upside down. He's about to be arrested, and they are going to run like rabbits. And so what he's doing here is he is helping their faith not fail long term by telling them in advance what is going to happen so that later, as they process their grief, as they process his crucifixion, as they process their cowardice, they will come to see that all of this was part of God's sovereign plan. Remember, they were alone processing things when Jesus came back and, and revealed himself to them after his resurrection. And it took a little while for them to just to be able to process it all, for their, their minds to compute and the, the heart to catch up that, that he had indeed risen and that this was his sovereign plan. But even in the midst of their suffering and processing, Jesus wants them to keep believing that in his words, I am. The Greek is ego eimi. See, Jesus says in our English translation, 
that you may believe that I am he. You need to understand that that word he was simply added by some translators to try to make our English versions more readable. Jesus literally said in the Greek original language here that we read, um, that you may believe that I am. Now, now where, where did you hear that before? Have you heard Jesus say those words before? Actually, he has. Where did we first hear those words? Back in Exodus, right? When, when, when Moses said to God in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Tell, 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 tell them, tell, tell Pharaoh, I am has sent you. The, the very name of God, Jesus is claiming once again here for his disciples. And so let's remember that the object of our faith is critical. It's not enough just for someone to have faith. That's okay in our society, right? Um, let's make sure that we are having faith in the very Son of God. Do you believe that Jesus is the very Son of God, equal in nature to God himself? Or are you today trusting in his cross work for you? That's, that's the whole reason for this season. Right? We, we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus for a mission to save his people from their sins. So what we see here is Jesus loving his disciples in this upper room by preparing their hearts for a tragedy. What he's saying is, when these things happen, keep believing in me. He says to them, if you receive me into your hearts, you are receiving God the Father himself. Look at his words of verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one that I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So we see Jesus demonstrating his love to his disciples here, but also he's demonstrating love to one particular disciple who's about to deny him, and that's letter C. He's showing love for his denier, and that would be a disciple named Peter. Now you get a sense in the text here that after Judas leaves the room, there's this like sigh of relief in Jesus. And you can imagine as, as evil has left. There's a more intimate sense in the language here that Jesus has with his disciples. And he speaks um, intimately with them, preparing them for what's about to happen. In verse 33, he says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, now also I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. And, and then he gives a very uh, important command that we will talk about um, in a moment here. But all Peter hears is that Jesus is leaving, and he doesn't like that one bit. You see, Peter loves Jesus. His devotion is sincere. He wants to be with Jesus. And so he takes, he's going to take Jesus to task for his words. And he says, Lord, verse 36, where are you going? Jesus answers him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And I think that's very important to remember. You will follow me 
afterward. There is hope here. But Peter says to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Now, you know what? Peter meant that. He was resolved emotionally to even die for Jesus. And you know what? Before we dig on Peter, let's remember that he was the guy who pulled out the knife and charged an armed crowd and cut off an ear, trying to defend his master before he denied him and ran like a rabbit as well. You know, aren't we like that sometimes? In a moment, maybe in a service, you're having a moment of communion with God and you tell him, I will, I will follow you anywhere. You know, I, I, I'm going to serve you, I'm yours. And then maybe later the same day, you find yourself giving in to the sin of anger or maybe even indulging in some fleshly lust. So let's not be too hard on Peter. But sometimes loving somebody means shooting straight with them. And that's what we see Jesus doing with Peter right now. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So Jesus is telling Peter that his devotion will not last the night. Before the crack of dawn, Peter would deny him three times. But notice even love in this rebuke, as recorded by John. As John remembers, uh, guided by the Holy Spirit, he tells, he, Jesus tells Peter, you will follow me afterward. Even as Jesus, or uh, sorry, Peter was weeping bitterly, as we read later, after he denied Jesus. Um, I imagine that those words rung true in his ears. There's still hope. Um, I will be with him afterwards. I will follow him afterwards. In fact, Luke adds uh, a little more shade of context. Luke remembers a few more words of Jesus to um, record in his gospel. In Luke chapter 22, verse 31, we read, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. In other words, you're going to come back from this. And when you have repented from your weakness, your betrayal even, your denial of me before men and have come back, I've got a mission for you. Uh, in fact, I need you to lead this team and, and strengthen your brothers. And I, and I love uh, in John 21, when, and we'll get a chance to study this in a, in a few months, when Jesus restores Peter by the, the sea, by the lake, after he rose from the dead. It was in love. And he asks Peter three times, do, do you love me? And, and he tells Peter even how he's going to die. And we tend to think, oh, man, that must have been really hard for Peter. But I think in some ways it may have been a joy. You're going you're gonna to follow me. You're going to have that honor, Peter. Well, after demonstrating love in the upper room, Jesus gives his disciples Number two, the commandment to love. The commandment to love. Verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now he's not saying that they can't come to heaven. We're going to see here next week that 
Jesus actually tells them explicitly he's going to heaven and he's going to prepare a place specifically for them. But what he's saying is, you can't come with me to the cross. This was a solo mission that only Jesus could do. Only Jesus was qualified to offer his life for the sins of mankind because he was the only perfect man. He was the only unblemished lamb that was qualified to be that kind of sacrifice. And so he would have to go to the cross alone. But he says to them, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, the first question that kind of came into my mind was, well, how is this new? I mean, I kind of remember the Old Testament saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? I mean, is this the first time that God's people are told to love each other? No, it's not the first time. But the the word here that is translated new, kainen, doesn't mean different. What it means is fresh. This is a fresh command that you need to be reminded of here. He wants them to love actually in a greater manner than they ever have before. Like he loved them when he washed their feet. Like he was about to love them when he dies for their sins on the cross. That is the kind of love that he's calling his followers to. So we're called by Jesus to love each other as his disciples today more than we love ourselves. Now that's a, that's a tall order. How, how do we do this? Well, well for one, I want to encourage you, we need to engage with each other spiritually. And, and, and so what that means is when we are hanging out, we, we need to talk about each, the, the cross with one another, right? We need to talk about the things of God, not just about the things of football or homeschool. And you'll notice that um, the first things that just popped into my head were a little more noble for the ladies than for the men. But still, sometimes it's, it amazes me how Christians can gather and talk very little of Christ. And so I want to say to my brothers who are about to spend a lot of time together, Make sure that you're talking with one another about spiritual things, not just about rowing. Engage with people who are different from you. If if you share Jesus, you are indeed brothers and sisters. And what this means is that you or I could walk into a very different room than we're used to culturally. You or I could walk into a church in Africa or Asia or Latin America where people have a very different background, okay? Or even here, maybe in a different location in the United States of America where people are ethnically or culturally or maybe even linguistically different. Maybe they even have a different political take than you do, and yet you can love them. You can share something deeper than any of those other things, and that is Christian love. You see, Everybody likes to be people who are similar, who are similar, who have similar takes. Uh, maybe they like a similar team. Maybe they have a similar profession, right? 
Uh, they have the similar kinds of cultural rules. We're naturally, there's that homogenous principle. But what Jesus is telling his disciples for all time is you are to love one another. And it is beautiful joining with a group of people who look very different on the outside, but they share Jesus Christ. What he's doing is forging a new community through which the world is supposed to know that he is for real. And you know, in our communities, when we get real with one another, this does not mean that we are ever going to be able to love perfectly, because we are not. We are sinners. Friction is going to happen in the church, right? Friction is going to happen in the boat. But what we must do is believe the best about each other's intentions. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7 says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And you know, I think one of the tools that Satan uses, and he certainly does love to divide the flock, right? I mean, that's what he wants to do, is to create, sow seeds of division between disciples of Jesus Christ. And often what he does is he accuses um, us to one another in terms of intent. So one way to, a practical way to love one another is if someone says something, instead of replaying it in your mind until you've arrived at the worst possible conclusion regarding intent, is to simply believe the best and choose to believe the best about one another. And you know what? This is helpful in marriage. This is helpful in church life. And this is helpful in a boat when you find yourself in very, a very tight situation with a couple other guys, right? Uh, and there's nowhere else to go. Believe the best about each other's intentions. And let's be quick when we do fail one another to give and to receive forgiveness. We are going to rub each other wrong at times. But let's be quick to give forgiveness and to receive forgiveness when we do sin against one another. But Jesus also means with this new commandment that Christians are to live together in a community that is marked by love. So in Jesus' time, how did you spot a disciple of Christ? Well, it was easy. You looked for Jesus, and you looked for the people that were around him, right? And if it was the same people over time, those were his disciples. They were followers. They wanted to be with him and hear what he had to say. Well, how do you, how do you spot a disciple According to Jesus, after he leaves the scene, you're to look at their love for one another. That's what he said. Christianity is meant to be lived and done as a band of brothers and sisters. A solo Christian is an anomaly, according to Jesus Christ. So what that means is if you have a habit of coming to church last and leaving right away, and you don't really have a, a community of Christians in your life around you, you're really missing something. You're really missing out. You see, a, a lone ranger is a dead ranger, spiritually. You are not going to survive by yourself in this broken world with, with devils filled, as Luther put it. A lone ranger is a dead ranger. And you know what? Peter may have been sloppy at times, but I'll tell you what, he was a pack animal, right? He was like a, a Labrador retriever, right? He was loyal. He was with his pack. He wasn't like a cat. I, I apologize, not really, to you cat lovers out there. Um, 
He wasn't a solitary animal. He was a pack animal. And I wonder if at some point in Judas's life, if he started isolating himself from the other disciples. Now, he might have looked good still. He might have played the part. But emotionally, spiritually, relationally, isolated himself. Uh, Stop being transparent. Right? That's dangerous. Jesus is saying that love has great power in fulfilling our mission. How will people know that we are legit Jesus followers, according to Jesus? Not by our church logo, but by our love for one another. That's what he says. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about our final point this morning, point three, the power of love. I mean, how can we really love someone else, maybe who's not like a child of ours or a spouse, more than we love ourselves? This is not natural to human beings, right? We naturally love those who bring something to the table for us. How can we do this? Why would Peter, who is about to deny Jesus on Jesus' road to the cross, later demonstrate his love for Jesus with no hesitation by hanging on his own cross, according to church history, upside down, which was his request because he didn't think he was worthy of being crucified in the exact same manner of his Savior. How could he do that? What is the power that changed Peter's heart, that gave him this kind of love? How can you love as Christ loved? What is the power of love? Well, I believe we see here implicitly in our text that it is the very cross of Christ. That is the power of love. So let's look at verse 31 and 32, which is kind of in the middle here. You might notice we kind of hit the top and the bottom, and now we're kind of converging on the middle. And if you're like me, when I first read uh, this text, verse 31 and 32, which is, was, was right after Judas leaves, right? Um, this is, this is like very important. My mind skipped right over the first two verses and went to the love part because the love part was more clear. But let's look at verse 31. Jesus never wastes words. Okay, He never says anything without great intent. And I just want to encourage you when you're reading the Bible and, and you see something that you're not quite sure what it means right away and, and your mind wants to just skip over it, maybe do a, maybe come back and look at that a little more carefully. So verse 31, we read, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So what, what is Jesus talking about here? Um, what word do you hear him using multiple times? Glory, right? Or glorify, or glorify. And so I, I wondered when I, when I read this, is, is Jesus somehow looking beyond the cross to his restoration at the right hand of the Father, right? And we know there's a sense, we, we, we get this from other texts, that he did that. He, to get through suffering, Jesus is a model for us. How do, we, how do we endure hardship? Well, he looks beyond the suffering to the, the, the final and future glory, right? But you got to notice the word now. He says now, like right now is the Son of Man glorified. And he, the, the last phrase he says is in glory, he's about to glorify him at once. So Jesus is talking here about his imminent suffering and death on the cross. 
Well, how can that be glorious? Well, theologian, New Testament scholar D.A. Carson explains this, I believe. He writes, The supreme moment of divine disclosure, the greatest moment of displayed glory, was in the shame of the cross. You got to think about that for a moment. What? It is, that is so upside down to the way we think. Pastor Matt Carter elaborates. There is no place we can look to better understand who God is than on the cross. There is no place we can look and more clearly recognize that He is worthy of all honor and glory than the cross. The cross is the highest moment of God's revelation to mankind. In the cross, we learn more about God's excellence than in, 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 in any other moment of history. In the death of Jesus, we see God's holiness and love, righteousness and mercy, justice and grace, sovereignty and humility, wisdom and patience. If we want to understand God, we must study the cross. If we want to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, we must study the cross. A crossless Christianity is a godless Christianity. Only through Jesus Christ, his suffering sacrifice, can God be known. Now, some Christians of puritanical um, inclination have a bit of an aversion to physical crosses. And it's a reaction to Roman Catholicism that emphasizes Jesus' presence on the cross, even being uh, re-crucified whenever, um, uh, uh, whenever communion is taken, right? This is the idea of transubstantiation, right? Um, and, and so, you know, whenever Mass is celebrated, Jesus is being re-crucified. And so Protestants, particularly those of, of, of puritanical influence, tend to have a, such a reaction to that that, that we, you, you can actually go into some churches and almost see no cross at all. But I would say, look deeper, look bigger than that. Behold the cross and see the very glory of God, the very wisdom of God, which is foolishness to mankind. Because when we look at the cross, we see his revelation. We, we, we see our sinfulness, and yet we see his forgiveness. We see all of these things that Pastor Carter points us toward. Maybe your love for God has grown cold. Well, what can you do? Look to the cross and behold his glory. Behold his mercy. As the song says, our sins though were many, his mercy is more. Maybe God feels very far away, and if you're honest and, and kind of backtrace why that feels so, it's not hard to find some sin involved in that. So what do you do? Well, there's the song that, that, that you've heard or we've sung. This is the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. The cross is our hope. This is the good news. This is the reason for the season. It's not just a, a helpless babe who happens to be Lord of the universe, right? This is about God the Son who came on a rescue mission to, for the purpose of dying on a cross and gloriously 
rose again and is now at the right hand of the Father. But we are going to be remembering the cross for eternity future, giving him praise and worship. So live a cross-centered life. One pastor writes, never get over the cross. The cross is not the starting line we quickly leave behind. The cross is Grand Central Station, and every part of our life runs out from it. Everything in the Christian life needs to revolve around Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The cross is our message. The cross guides our methods, and the cross empowers our mission. When the cross is central, God causes true worship to flow out from our hearts, through our lives, and out our lips. So brothers and sisters, this Christmas season, with a lot to do, you got presents to buy, parties to attend, right? Um, Let's make sure that we are cross-centered people. Don't think of the cross as just something you've left behind, that there was at the entrance to your Christian faith. I challenge you this month, every day, to live through the power of the cross. And as we pray, I would like to invite our deacons who will be serving us communion to come forward. And I will close this in prayer, and then we'll just move into a time of of meditation. And this is a time to reflect on the cross, that Jesus has called us to remember his sacrifice, the, the body that was shed and broken, and the blood that spilled out for our atonement. He calls us to remember the cross. And on this very evening, he called his disciples for the future until he returns when they gather to regularly remember the cross as they commune with him and with one another. And let me just say that if you are not truly his disciple, if you have never bowed before the cross and recognized your sin before holy God and your helplessness in your own strength and look to the cross in faith, not the wood, but in the Savior who hung there for you in your place, and you've trusted it, and you haven't trusted him yet, right? You've not, you haven't devoted your life to him yet. Then I just ask you not to take communion with us, okay? Because we don't want you to eat or drink judgment on you. What I would invite you to do is just um, uh, silently reflect on these things. And we appreciate you and respect you and welcome you here. Um, but I would, I would even invite you right now to simply call out to him in faith. Because the Bible says that, that all who call on the name of the Lord in faith and believe in, in their hearts that, that, he di- that he died on the cross and that he rose from the dead and, and are willing to confess that before men will be saved. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the love we see in your son with his disciples. Even love for a group of knuckleheads that he turned into uh, the leaders of the church, that the great apostles and missionaries of, of the first century that we see enshrined on cathedrals in Europe. These were the, the fishermen and the merchants, the tax collector who fled. His love for a, a disciple who faltered and yet came back, and even the love that we see for his enemy, his betrayer, until the end. Lord, we we thank you for his command, and we ask you to, to help us to follow that command by loving one another. And Lord, I, I, I do pray if there's anyone in this room or anyone watching right now who does not have a living relationship with you through the power of the cross, I pray that today you would reach their soul. 
that you would open up their heart to believe that they would simply put their faith in Jesus Christ, that they would believe in him and be saved. Lord, as we reflect on the cross right now, I pray that you would make us truly thankful and joyful, as our theme has been this morning. Lord, I pray that you would give us passionate love and renew our love for our Savior. In his name I pray, amen.